This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California in Silver Lake in Malibu and created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friend and our friend Evan Haynes and their friend Bob. This program at Aloe was basically invented to give addicts a place where they go to get respect and get well. They have a detox that makes you feel comfortable if you're super sick. They do uh, amazing amenities like surfing, sound bath meditation, sweat lodges. They have a holistic approach to getting better. But mostly it's designed as a place where an addict can get respect in their very vulnerable time. If you're feeling incredibly vulnerable and you need a place where you uh, can get cared for, where you can get treated with compassion rather than control, I totally recommend Aloe. I have some friends who went there, and they all say the same thing, that Aloe is a fine place to go. If you're feeling fucked, and you don't know where to get treatment, and you're willing to go to California, I would go to Aloe. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by Just Coffee Co-op. Just Coffee Co-op has some really good fucking coffee. In fact, just this morning, I took my bag of Just Coffee co-op beans because I thought I was really cool to have them send me beans and I ground it up in my crazy grinder made it fine and I put it in our um our coffee machine and Linda usually hates when I make a pot of coffee she used to love the k-cup she would like it when I go to the store and get her a cup of coffee but the justcoffee.coop coffee is the first time Linda likes drinking a pot of coffee at home and I, I have this amazing blend it's called bike fuel and it's fucking great it's got a a picture of a skeleton on a bike on the front i love that the coffee has notes of chocolate it is delicious coffee go to justcoffee.coop to get this amazing coffee Uh, every blend you could ever imagine beautiful packaging and they practice social justice from the grounds up which means they give their growers a good deal Uh, go to justcoffee.coop Type in Dopey Pod for a little discount. Tell them we want the Dopey Blend. Tell them you'll buy the Dopey Blend. I want the Dopey Blend. JustCoffee.coop. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by listeners like you. If you guys want to help out and give money on Patreon, feel free. It's www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. If you don't want to, that's totally fine, too. If you want stickers, Venmo me. If you want a hat, Venmo me. Uh, I hate to ask you guys for money, 
but I do love to get it. Now, enough of all these ads. Here's the fucking show. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I'm Dave, and we're at my dad's house, and we have a very special guest in person, which we rarely do. So uh, he's on the phone, though. I don't know. What, what are you doing? Cleaning my glasses. He's cleaning his glasses. This is acclaimed... <laughs> Not in the phone. Acclaimed author, poet. What else do you do? Addict, alcoholic, <laughs> father, husband. Nick Flynn, welcome to Dopey. Thanks. It's great to, it's amazing to see the inner sanctum here, to see where the magic happens. Uh, this is amazing apartment here, for all of you who haven't got to see it yet. So if, if you... Um, a lot of tchotchkes. Tchotchkes? Tchotchkes is, is, tchotchkes. A, is it's a proper term. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you lay the lay of the land for out. the uninitiated? It's, it's whiter than I expected. There's like white chairs and white walls and paint pictures of flowers in the walls. And I got to meet Alan earlier. He seems much nicer than you make him out to be. Uh, I don't think I've ever <laughs> underestimated his, uh, his niceness. In fact, you know, that was a recent criticism I had on the show, which was um, that I'm too mean. At the, did you listen to the episode with the BBC lady? I did, yes. I, and did. I, I was, you know, I, I almost even went as far as to blame him for my addiction on that show. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, I heard that. But yeah. I didn't mean that. That was not what I meant. What I meant... It was funny, because you were sort of of two minds. You were like, no one can stop you except grace from your addiction, yet where the fuck were you? No, it was more like... There was a little... Well, there was that. I mean, When he tells the story, he says... He says it in this, like, very, aw, shucks, I don't know what was going on, and then all of a sudden we were at the theater, and, and you're at Beth Israel, and I have to go see you, and, and it's like... And he didn't know what heroin was either. He thought you'd be out in a week. Well, he, it's yeah. that kind of stuff, but it's, yeah. I want to... Dad, come here. Come here. Come in, please. <laughs> I want to clear the air. I want, I want this to be 100% documented for the thing. Dad, here, you take... Please share Nick's mic for a second. And I want to apologize for ever insinuating that you are at all responsible for my addiction. It's about time. Yes, yeah, good. I have, I've apologized about this before in the past. Yeah, but now you mean it, though. That's good. How do you know I mean it? Uh, well, maybe you don't mean it still. I, I just think I apologize for insinuating that my addiction was caused by you or your absenteeism or your absent professor act. You know, that's absolutely true. It wasn't caused by me at all, positively. Well, now, what is this? What is this false bravado that you're coming no, with? No, no, no. I'm, I'm happy that you're finally admitting it, yes. I've not, I've never spent time uh, saying that my addiction was caused no, by no, you. No, listen, listen. Let, with Be the, serious for a second. I am. You, if, with you the, try um, so hard to do shtick. With the BBC lady, yes. I think you were really very nervous, and, and, uh, and you said things that you really didn't really think through in that. So I, I think what you're you, saying you have, now you is true. You have this need, to, a preternatural need to put me down. When you come on the show, I was, I was, preter, is that a word, Nick? Well, Patternatural, your father, like, you know, okay. Patter's father. So. Well, what, this, is, this is right. That's, I, was, I wouldn't say I was nervous. I, I would say I was excited and anxious. And maybe, yes, I was nervous. I wanted the show to be good. And you sit there saying, how could this happen? Where, you know, like, 
this sort of like not being involved. I with. just said what I remembered to happen that we got this one phone call and that was the uh, a major shock. That's that's exactly what I meant. Now to back it up a little further, I had a wonderful childhood. I I come from an incredibly supportive and generous family and sometimes I can be an entitled asshole. Uh, yes, okay. And you have white privilege. All right. I thank don't. You. Thank, you. thank you for you coming. See, you're on starting this. more trouble again. You see. Um, do you have anything else you want to say to the dopey nation? You want, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm. How about how about Nick Flynn? Nick Flynn comes off his bike and he, he he comments at how suntanned you are, and then asks for suntan lotion, which I thought was classic. It was very nice. Yeah. All right. So thank you, and I apologize. And anybody who doesn't believe that I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You accept? Yes. All right, back to the show. Now we got that out of the way. That but, sordid bit of information. But that, that story about, I can understand. I mean, as an addict, like sort of wondering, being lost in the middle of it, like wondering just like, well, where is, you know, how do I get out of this? And sort of trying to reach for something to get out of it and, and thinking like, where, where is everybody? Where's, where's the lifeline out of this? And of course you'd reach so toward like, you know, at some point of your subconscious or some, some poor, you know, in the dark moment, you'd be like, why don't you fucking help me, you know? Well, I don't think it was like that. And I no, think okay. one of the interesting things, though, is that I think about your story and it was like the opposite. You know, our stories are like the opposite story. Like, I came from this super safe, middle class, uh, you know, both my parents were teachers. Both my parents were like, you know, middle class Jewish you know, overprotective, and you came from the wilds of uh, Situate, Massachusetts. That's, yeah, that's true. I mean, the wild. If, if anyone who goes to Situate will, would, wouldn't think it's so wild. And also, but, I want to or, apologize for bringing... I should have introduced you properly before I brought my father on the show. Not, Nick yeah. Flynn, he wrote a very, very famous book called Another Bullshit Night in Suck City. It got made into a very, very big movie called Being Flynn with Robert De Niro and Paul Dano. His other book just came out... or. What was the second book about uh, another making the movie? Oh, uh, yeah. I made, I made a book. Uh, I wrote a book called... While the film was, while it was being filmed, I was on set every day, and I, I wrote a book about the making of my first book into a film. So I wrote a book. They made a film about it. Then I wrote a book about making a film about it. I love so, that. I mean, that's yeah, what I'm starting yeah. now. It's called The Reenactments. It's called The Reenactments. I'm yeah. starting The Reenactments now. Oh, cool, now. cool. Um, but anyway, so you grew up in, in Situate. Your father was gone, and your mother was, was seriously depressed. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say seriously depressed. Like, cause it wasn't, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, there's no diagnosis of her, and she didn't really take any medication. Maybe there wasn't medication back then, but she was, she was working a lot. I mean, she had, you know, she was young. She was like 20. She was a single mother with two kids by the time she was 20. And, uh, you know, her husband, my father, was uh, an alcoholic. I mean, this is pretty much no question about that. And her, her father was an alcoholic and her mother was an alcoholic. And we came from, there was a lot of alcoholism in our family and, and drug use. And so um, uh, she just, it was a hard time. So I don't know, like she was very vivacious and very alive and young and beautiful and also. And yet, yeah, I mean, she, it's, certainly depression was part of it. Yeah. Well, you also described that she would take pills by the handful kind of thing. I didn't say by the handful. Well, yeah. It would, would kind of, I guess I inferred <laughs> handfuls of pills. No, no. She had bottles of, of, of like, uh, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure what Darvon and Furanol are. Some kind of like... Darvon is some sort of opiate derivative thing. I, I, yeah. I got prescribed that a couple times. Yeah, yeah. They were strong. I mean, they, they would knock out, knock out pills of some sort, yeah. And, and your mother uh, tragically killed herself, so, I yeah. don't, so I'm sorry for that. And, uh, and I don't want to talk about it lightly. You know, I mean, 
must have been a, a terrible, terrible thing to happen. Because also, this book, Another Bullshit Night in Suck City, is a, it's just such a beautiful book. It's such an amazing book. And, um, you know, maybe I, I can't say enough about how much I enjoyed it. I was working, uh, I was working one day. And uh, it was very busy. It was like on the weekend. And uh, I was getting French fries and I was running around. And, and Nick was in the store and he kind of like tapped me and he's like, Oh, I like the show. And I looked at Nick. I thought he was crazy. You know, he like, he's sitting there, he's all sweaty in his Danzig shirt. And I'm like, Who the fuck is this guy? And he's like, uh, what, is, what is Herzog on top of Danzig about? <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, you, know, you know, the IFC, the cinema. Down yeah. the street, yeah. Uh, IFC Cinema. It, they have a whole line of T-shirts where they take directors and they put them with heavy, right. heavy Werner, metal bands. Werner Herzog. Yeah, Werner Herzog with Danzig. Yeah, what together. Was, what was Werner Herzog's movie? Oh, he's done a lot. Of, he did. Uh, he did Grizzly Man. I mean, that might be one that you remember. That's uh, one where the guy gets killed by the bear. He gets eaten by the bear at the end. What yeah, an amazing. Yeah, movie. but he's done. Herzog's done amazing movies. Yeah, beautiful. You did the one about the cave, the the cave paintings called. Uh, I forget what it's called, but it's like you go in, he did it in 3D, like going into the, and seeing the oldest art in the world in this cave painting in, uh, in France. And he's, yeah, he's, wild, he's a wild man. He's, he's great. Well, yeah. I, I like the shirt. But anyway, Nick, Nick's, at, yeah. Nick's at, at Katz is looking at me like he's crazy. And at that point, like Dopey was, was I don't know, was rolling around. I was, I was looking at you admiringly. I was like, but wow. But that was this... crazy to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of any sort of admiration was crazy. And I think Dopey had just done uh, This American Life. And, and actually, people were starting to reach out with, like, people with books and this and that. And here was Nick at Katz's, and he's like, I want to give you a copy of my book. So he hands me a copy of Another Bullshit Night in Suck City while I'm taking care of, like, a million people. It was very busy that day. And, um, and he, he wrote, he, he inscribed it, which, which is very beautiful. He writes, he writes... Um, I forgot what I wrote, actually. I'll, I'll remind you. Yeah. The, the object is here in front of us. Where is it? Oh, here we go. He wrote for Dave, and then he wrote, and Chris, in uh, parentheses, and he wrote, wishing you another bullshit night in Dopey Nation. Nick Flynn, March uh, 2019, Katz's. And uh, I ran downstairs, and I put it in my locker. And Nick was... And I, but as I'm going downstairs, I'm kind of examining the book. And I see all the awards that Nick won. Because Nick won, like, every fucking award there is. And, uh, and there's a lot of, like, great, great quotes. And I'm like, wow, this guy maybe isn't so crazy. Or maybe, maybe he's crazy and talented. Maybe he's crazy talented. But, but I, th I thought you said that I was looking at you like you were crazy. Now oh. it's turned. Now it's turned. I think there was two, two crazy people. <laughs> and, um, and I come upstairs, and I had also like said to my friend who worked there, oh, this guy's a writer, blah, blah, blah. And my friend comes running out of the office, and he says, I think he's married to the actress Lily Taylor. I said, I don't think so. That guy's crazy. <laughs> and, and then I run after you as you're leaving, and I said, are you married to Lily Taylor? And he's like, I am. And I was like, weird. Um, so that was the origin of our meeting. Did you, did you get to the point in the book where Lily appears? I did. Did you Good. add that? Did you add, I, I, I got to the end of the I book. I did. I did. I added. That was the last edit to the book. I, I had another actress who was, in there. Who was I it? I can't say. I can't say. That's, that'd be... Was it Lisa Bonet? Someone else. You know, someone from like the 90s, an actress from the 90s. It that, wasn't that Lisa Bonet? Know. No, no, it wasn't. No, no. Um, you, you can go through them all and I'll just say no. So you so changed you it to Lily after you guys were together? After yeah, I mean, after our first date or something. That's because you know I didn't know any actresses from the nineties. So. Well, um, 
the craziest, craziest um, part of the book. I mean, if you guys don't know about this movie or this book, it basically tells the story of, of Nick's life and um, the beginnings of his alcoholism and his drug addiction and uh, his, I guess it was a career working with the homeless. Yeah, I did it for, I worked with the homeless for many years, for about seven, all through my 20s, until I was into my 30s, yeah, like seven years or so, yeah. Now, Nick's father was homeless. He wasn't homeless when I started, is the point. Like, he was, he was living in a, a cheap apartment in, in Boston. He was living in, like, SROs, you know, single-room occupancy places. Yeah, Linda used to work at one yeah, here. Which there used to be a lot of. There used, yeah. to, be, there used to be where marginal men especially would live, uh, and that's it's sort of what made cities interesting, too. There were just a lot of these places where you could just go and live really cheaply in, like, a tiny little shitty room for, you know, for very little money and just work a little job and just do whatever you were doing. And then they, they, they're mostly gone for the most part now. And they were going then. This was back in the early 80s. Uh, they were sort of, you know, cities were gentrifying and stuff. So my father got caught up in that and ended up homeless. After I'd been working for three years at the shelter, and then he, he, he walked through the doors. Yeah. Well, you describe in the book kind of the allure of working with the homeless has to come from someplace within you. And if your father hadn't been homeless yet, what do you think it was? That's a good question. Yeah, yeah. Like the, or, yeah, because it, it, it makes sense. Like, in retrospect, when you look at it, it makes all sense. Like, your father's homeless. Well, no, but he wasn't homeless. Like, you know, was I the magnet that pulled him out of his apartment into the shelter, or was he the magnet? That type of person. And I think the closest I can get to is that I didn't know my father... And I started working at the shelter within like a year after my mother had committed suicide. Um, and I was really lost. And, she, and I was doing construction at the time in Boston. Like, that's what I did. I did like carpentry. And I, I wasn't a very good carpenter. Uh, and I wasn't very good at much, many things. I got fired from every restaurant I worked in. So I wasn't, I wasn't really succeeding in things necessarily. But also I was, in some ways, like in the shelter, I, it was just a place where I... I I felt like I belonged in some way. And for whatever reason, but it might have been, you know, just to find... One, one thing I was using, you know, at the time, I was, you know, I, I, was, I was definitely, you know, using, and there was a high tolerance for that. There were a lot of guys out of prison. They'd go out of prison, they'd start working at the shelter. They'd get out of rehab, start working at the shelter. They would or be actively using, and they should be getting into rehab or something. Do you remember so, what drew, drew you in in the first place? What drew me into it? Yeah. Well, I, I remember a woman, I was doing construction and this woman, I was living on a boat in Boston and this other woman that lived on another boat next to us was talking and she uh, her father lived in the boat. I think she would sometimes be in the boat and she worked there. She worked at the shelter. Her name was Giselle. Uh, remember, yeah, she's a really wonderful family and uh, they, she was working there and she just sort of said like, like, you know, you should check it out. She was just really like, you should yeah, she just could see I was, I was lost and, and she thought it would be a good place for me, I think. So I just went in and, and checked it out. So. And, I, and what were you... It was also political too. It was like a political thing too. It felt like a way to be politically active, like to, like there was this sort of crisis in the country of like, you know, that was just beginning back then, like in the early 80s, the, the, this sort of wave of homelessness, which is hard, like with, you know, young people now, if you talk to them, like, you know, they've grown up with just thousands of people sleeping on the streets of every city. And it just wasn't like that when I was a kid. I, you know, you didn't see like that many people sleeping on the streets uh, when I was a kid, so. See, I did. He, I mean, when I grew up here, there were tons of people homeless. Uh, yeah, New York was sort of particular, but it went into, like, the suburbs. Like, there were every little church in every little town in, in every state had, like, a little... had to set up, like, six beds for homeless people. I mean, it became, like, a real epidemic. Like, yeah, a big city like New York would always have, like, a number of homeless people, but it went... it, like, multiplied by 10 
in the 80s. Now that I think about it, though, I feel like for you, and I, and I only know you a little bit, but yeah. I feel like for you, there was a mixed draw. Like, you love weird stories. You love down-and-out stories. You're drawn to them. And, and you were also, like, of this sort of punk rock political mind where you were like, all of those things are checked off here. I can fit in, and I can be part of it. Yeah, and it was, you know, I, I definitely wasn't, like, like, you know, I was very anti-yuppie and anti-gentrification and, yeah, uh, punk rocky. You know, like, it just felt like... Like there, I had friends that were very good friends of mine. They would do. There's a street in Boston called Newbury Street, and they would go work in restaurants. And Newbury Street is very fancy. It's like the fanciest street, and they would sort of they could fit into that culture, uh, and they could fit into like uh, people with money and stuff. I just couldn't. I just couldn't fit into that culture. So I felt just much more at home with. Uh, and also, it was also like the tolerance. Like I could, you know, there was a very low bar, you know, like the, of what you needed to do to work there. You just had to like sort of like show up, and you, you know, had to show up. You had to be not be freaked out. By yeah, the stuff yeah, yeah, that was yeah. Gonna happen. Yeah, yeah. And, and like, yeah. what level of, a, of alcoholic addiction were you when you started there? I mean, I was like, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I started, you know, drank for the first time when I was like twelve or something. I got drunk for the first time, and then, you know, went through my, you know, my, you know, teenage years, getting increasingly drunk. By the time I had my driver's license, I, I totaled three vehicles before I was eighteen. Like, like, you know, I, I went to the hospital. You know, I lost my spleen in a motorcycle accident. Yeah. Drunk. I, I totaled two other cars both times I was using. Uh, you know, hit, hit other people's cars. It was, it was a disaster. And went to, the, went to jail. was handcuffed, went to jail, and all that stuff when I was a teenager. So after, after I lost my spleen when I was 18, and, you know, that, that sort of... Um, it, it sort of, like, woke me up in a way. Like, I got to be more careful because I want to okay. keep getting fucked up but I don't want to like... You don't want to lose any more organs. I don't want to, yeah, I don't, I don't lose... I don't want to have the police involved. So I was doing a lot of like sort of maintenance. Like I was high every day, but not like... And I'd only, you know, go out... I'd go, only go too far like once a month or something. So it wasn't like, you know, I was working. I was working every day. And, I, and also I was working too because I, I also didn't have like a place to fall back to. There was no home to go back to. Like, you know, once my mother died... Uh, we didn't have a home. There wasn't like a place like if, if things fell apart, someone would pick me up. So I sort of had to figure out a way to sort of like have my own job, have a place, have a you know, have all that stuff. Well, one weird thing that sort of struck me when I was thinking about you coming in, and I was thinking about what had happened with my dad that I had like, you know, lashed. Somebody wrote me that I was an entitled asshole, and, and I thought about like we I had conversations where you've been seen as an entitled asshole, but we came from such different entitled sort of spheres. But I thought of your parents, and your parents were both raised with money. Yeah, yeah, both my parents, yeah. And yet yeah. they did the opposite. You know what I mean? It's like, it's just interesting that generationally how it can switch up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both my parents were, yeah, they, they, they were, had means. They were not just, like this, you know, this is like, I mean, you'd call it middle class. I mean, your dad was a teacher, a high school teacher, right? Like, Both my parents yeah, were teachers. Yeah, which I would say it's like almost working class. It's like not like solid middle class. It's like sort of work, you're living in public housing, and it's... it's well, there's a, the, we, we, yeah. it, it all worked That's out. That's what I would say. I would it, say, it yeah. It worked out for our family because yeah. my parents had such a crazy work ethic and because of public housing yeah. and because yeah. my mother made the two of them do jobs after school yeah. and work every summer and... You know, every year they would they would put yeah. all their money into retirement, and it was like the I feel like it was the opposite for your parents. Like your parents did not approach the the world like with this crazy, sensible, fear driven 
life? What, well, my mother did. I mean, my mother was quite pragmatic. She just wanted to make it on her own, but it was almost impossible. I mean, she, she just wanted to rejected, for whatever reasons, rejected the money she came from and wanted to be independent. Because she also had rejected by marrying my father, by getting pregnant when she was like 17. And, you know, just leaving a, a very difficult alcoholic family to make her own difficult family. Her and, then, family. and then she was just like, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I made my bed, I'm going to lay in it, so I'm going to lie in it. So she just, um, I think that was more, it was like sort of this like fierce independence was also with, with some, you know, uh, addiction thrown in. Like it was like a, a lethal mix in some way. Like you couldn't ask for help. Like your, your sign on the wall saying, help me. Like, you know, that might have been good for my mother to say, <laughs> to have like, right. to ask for help, to actually ask for help, you know? And it could have, it could have, changed a lot of stuff in your it, life. It, yeah, it could have, but whether my grandfather, her father, could have actually helped her, could have, I, I mean, he could have helped her financially in a second, but whether psychically he could have gotten over whatever he, whatever he was doing, you know, so. Right, and yeah. those are bigger questions that yeah, we can bigger, possibly ponder. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and before, you know. I, but that I, thing, I, I was sort of resisting I like to think about you being entitled and coming from this means. So I said, it seems very, it, it seems like real American working class, like. Right. You know, but it's uh, more like. It's not, more not working class, but like lower middle class or something. Like, not like solid, like, you know. No, that's how we came up. And, and yeah, obviously, I went yeah. to public school and, you know, I went to private college until I got kicked out. And then I went to public college. And, and my parents did pay for treatments. I went to a ton of public detoxes. Yeah. Um, and now, like, miraculously like my life is better and I act like I, I came up with a lot of very rich kids I went to a school with a lot of rich kids um, I get a, I, I get a kick out of it but I, I never needed anything mm -hmm. I never wanted for anything I worked my whole life but if I needed something they my parents would give it to me mm -hmm. you know what I mean like I was take I was very well taken care of and also like I grew up sitting in front of the TV so like there is sort of like a, a couch potato ness that kind of gets mixed up with entitlement I don't know it doesn't matter. It, it's, it's regardless. I get hate mail from fans in the Dopey Nation who feel like I'm entitled. So fuck them. But <laughs> and on the other hand, I'm more entitled than a lot of other people. Sure, now, sure. One of my favorite stories, and it just struck me as like a, a pseudo sort of innocent Dopey story in the book, which was like you describe your mother as uh, having a lot of different boyfriends. And, uh, and one of the boyfriends decided he was going to grow weed in the backyard of the house. Yeah, yeah, that was, the, she married him, yeah, yeah. And um, that was before you started smoking pot, right? Yeah, right before, yeah. Which yeah. is funny, because yeah. it's like you just missed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, and, I killed the plants. I went out and, yeah, I was horrified, because we lived in this little town, and we were also in like this really sort of shabby house, like this really, fall, it was like a converted summer cottage, and she, the mother would date uh, contractors a lot, like carpenters a lot, just because they, the houses needed work, and so she it was, you get, you know, uh, she'd have some help, and so this guy was, you know, he was a, he was young, but he was also a carpenter in a sense, like he didn't really know what he was doing. He was only he was just back from Vietnam. Uh, he was ten years younger than her. He was twenty two. She was thirty two. I was twelve, and uh, so he was sort of like an older brother. It was, it was an odd relationship, and he was also he was he was you know struggling. He was really in deep into PTSD, and you know doing drugs. He was doing heroin. He was doing a lot in our town. But he also started growing marijuana in our backyard, in this tiny backyard. And there were other houses around that could see it. And I was like horrified we were going to get arrested. And so I went out and uh, I, pulled the, I pulled the plants out by the roots and shaved the roots off and stuck them back in as if he wouldn't notice when he pulled it up that there were no roots on it. Like it was like clearly shaved with a knife. And then 
he just like that day they were just in the toaster oven like toasting like he was just cooking it up like the that's so funny yeah. you, and your brother had like added bleach without knowing he, that you had done suppose, it right? yeah because he's I'm not totally sure my brother always has like these stories and when I say a story he always has a He's the topic. Well, he has a matching story that seems to mirror the one I told. Like I'm like, really, in the same day you did that? Like that? It, so you think it's a lie. One of us is misremembering, which is very possible. So, like, I, I can't imagine we both did it on the same day, but it's possible. I think that's funny. I think it's funny, like the idea or the the deal of uh, of misremembering anything. Yeah. Like, like I try to, I try to look back on my on my life all the time, and I don't remember so many things. Um, well, I have, I have, you know, the thing with me in the book, I have the moment in the book where I, I, I it's in this book where I get sober, where I, I smoke crack one night. That's in the book, right? I don't remember. You told me this story was in the movie, and I don't remember it in the book. But, like, please, tell the story. So, so yeah, I was, I was, you know, I was like, I was working. My father was home, had been homeless for, like, two years, and when he showed up at the shelter... Um, my, yeah, my addiction just like ramped up. I just started really getting fucked up. Like I didn't know how to handle it. And so I just started really using more, uh, mostly drinking pot. Wait, before you even get yeah, there, yeah. you're working in the shelter. Yeah. You know, your father's been, well, I knew for a couple months that he'd been evicted. Right, 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 right. And then, but I, you know, but I gave him some money so he wouldn't show up at the shelter. I gave him like a 300 bucks or something. So he wouldn't show up at the shelter. Did you say you better not yeah, yeah, come don't, to Pine yeah, Street? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, don't, just don't show up where I work. So then one day after, uh, I don't know, four months or something, he shows, he, I, I came into work one day and they said, and they took me into the office, the man, the, the uh, supervisor took me to the office. And the supervisor was just like a guy, I, I was a supervisor sometimes, it was just like a guy like me. And he said like, so, you know, a guy came in today, he said it was your father. And, and I sort of knew, I knew it really was my father. I was like, okay. And, and he said, so what do you want to do? You, you can just go home. You don't have to stay here. And so I, so they gave him a bed. I said, well, what did you do? And they gave him a bed for the night. So I knew he was going to show up again for the bed a little later that night. They gave him a bed ticket. Um, so what did you do? That night I just went out and worked and waited for him to show up, you know. And, was it terrifying? And, uh, well, it was many things. It was sort of, it was, it, was, it was a bizarre mix of emotions. It was, you know, suddenly like, you know, you can appear like in a job, like people don't know your whole life when you're working, but suddenly like it seemed like a real deep, there was shame around it and, there's this deep shame sort of rose up, like that, like oh, now everyone's going to see who I am. Like, but there's so many other components because your father had left. He, uh-huh. didn't, he didn't raise you. Yeah, he, he was your father in name, but not in action. Well, he'd been, you know, he'd been in prison. He'd been, you know, he, you know, he was, he was a con man. He was a, you know, a really messy drunk. He know. was also. He seems. Is he still alive? No, he died five years ago. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. Um, he seems like a crazy person, basically. You yeah, know? but it's hard to say how much of that is, like, alcohol-induced, too. Right, you a know? character. Yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll say he was... Because, like... <laughs> and I really, really... A piece of the book that I just loved is in the beginning of the book that we have these flashes into his life mm-hmm. and him in Florida and him in, in Boston and him trying to run your grandfather's car dealership. And it's like you can really see it. And, um, and I love that. And, and so as, as your father descended you were coming of age and you just heard of his, his descent? Well, you know, I mean, my mother, he would say, he started sending letters to me from federal prison. He got, he got put away for, uh, uh, basically bank robbing. It was like, he was forging checks and passing them like all around, but 
not very elegantly in some way because he was getting photographed doing it. He worked with some gangsters. and He was no catch-me-if-you-can type. No, no. Like, he, he, he liked to be filmed, so he sort of, like, liked to charm the, the tellers with his oily charm and sort of seduce them. And he'd always go to a woman to get them to cash the check, and he'd pretend to be from, you know, the upper class. Like, he'd wear, like, Brooks Brothers suits and things like that. And, uh, but, he, but he was just getting filmed the whole time. They, they, had, they knew who he was, and they caught him after a couple of years, I mean, doing this. And he went to jail for a while. And, uh, and so he started writing me letters from, from federal prison. And, you know, I, I sort of asked my mother about it. I was around 15 or so, and I'd say, like, so what's up with, you know, what, what's the story of this? So, and she would sort of just tell me very abbreviated versions of it. She didn't want to talk about it much. So. Right, because it was very painful for her. Because, I mean... She, she bad blood, a lot of bad blood between them, yeah. I'm yeah. sure, I mean, she, they had two kids together, and I'm sure for a second there was the, the possibility of having a normal middle-class family for a second. I think it, it does seem like she was really trying to jump ship from a bad situation at home. Her upbringing, I think, was sort of nightmarish in a way with the alcoholism there and whatever. Like, it just felt like there was, like, some bad stuff going on. So she just jumped ship onto the next ship that was going by. Which was him. Which was him, and you know, of course, you're gonna, you know, your your radar isn't that good at that point, so you're gonna go. It's familiar, someone who's also a drunk, and you know. right. So, how old were yeah. you uh, that faithful night where your dad showed up? I was 27. So you were 27, and and you were full blown alcoholic stoner. Well, I was. I was highly functional. I was like really, you know, very. I was working every day, but I, it was just getting. It got messier after he showed up. Like it was because I really didn't want to like have police involved anymore or hospitals involved and I, I just wanted to keep being able to get high every day but without consequences I, I was going to be a better alcoholic than I had seen in my family you right know? right you were going to be a functional alcoholic which is a great term I don't, yeah. I don't know yeah I don't know how that works at all well it doesn't it, it's got a short short shelf life yeah, yeah now the real now the next question or the next really interesting component to the story is that Nick's father Jonathan um fashioned himself to be the great American writer. Yeah. He had this dream uh, of writing the great American novel, of being a legendary writer. Um, now, when did you start writing? Yeah, that's... Um, He's spitting ice into his hand as he talks. fell onto the floor. It's like, okay. Gosh, Don't yeah. tell my dad. I was trying to do it subtly. Um, Sorry, I ruined that for you. I apologize. So... Uh, yeah, I, I began writing when I was a kid, like I think before I knew that he was a writer. So my mother didn't talk about him to us as far as I know, like at all. But maybe she, maybe she had mentioned he was a writer. But I don't think that's what encouraged me to write. I just feel, felt it was like I just had this fascination with writing, with books, with like language. And it seemed like something that was fun to do. It was fun. It was like, like somehow creating words out of language, worlds out of language was, was fun to me. So I did it when I was like a kid, when I was like 11 or 12, I began, you know, and then I began, you know, I got, I got drunk for the first time I was 12, but then like by the time I was 16, I was writing, you know, science fiction stories. When I was 11, I was writing like Sherlock Holmes type stories. I was sort of mirror whatever I was reading. I just, I just found it really fun. I wouldn't do it in school. I do it outside of school. It just seemed like the thing I could do on my own. Or, well, don't you yeah. think that's pretty wild? that you had this ambition and this desire that was your father's whole identity without knowing it was his whole identity? I mean, I don't think I knew it was his identity, but I, d- I didn't know much. If I knew, it wasn't, like a, it wasn't like a really clear thing. And if it was, it was presented as being a really bad thing to do. Like, to be, to be call yourself a writer was to say you were basically uh, irresponsible. 
Then, right, because yeah. he because he's called himself a writer and he yeah, wasn't. Yeah, yeah. You're, I'm a writer like your dad's a writer. Like I like I name I name things and like I do something and I'm like, I'm that's my book, you know. And I just come up with an idea and I say that's going to be my book. I, I wrote one thing, which was my blog for uh, the cats thing. Did you ever read it? I didn't read it. No, uh, you have to read it. You okay. have to read it. Okay. Um, but uh, it's still up. It's yeah. Are you still doing it or no? No. Your dad. Um, your dad was uh, in prison, and he worked at a button, right? Well, he, he let people in and out of the prison, and he called his book The Button Man. Yeah, and when you say he worked at a button, I was like, he worked at a button? What is that? Yeah, right? he pressed the button, yeah, that let people in and out of the prison. Supposedly, that's what he says. And it, that he worked, there was a little cage, and someone had to show, a, you know, show some sort of identification, and if they showed it through the glass... He'd press the button and let them in or out, yeah. I just love the title, The Button Man. The Button Man. I know, it's a good title, yeah. It's, it's a, a good great title. title. And, you... the, and the first 30 pages of the book, you know, I, he, does, he did have a manuscript of that book, but he supposedly had dozens of books, but they were all just sort of little clippings of ideas in envelopes, like written on cocktail napkins and stuff with photographs and things. They were, they're, they're really the loose, I mean, not even a draft of something, but this was actually a draft of some woman who, uh, I met the woman too. I, met, I got to meet all the people from his life in the writing of the book, but... I met the woman who typed up the whole manuscript for him, like that the got it actually onto the form. And, and the first 30 pages of it are really quite good. It's really sort of experimental and strange and a hybrid of like letters and dreams and like little imagistic moments that are, it's really quite good for 30 pages. And then it, and then it falls apart, like for the next like 500 pages into like, wow. into like incoherence. Like it's just, he can't maintain it, which is almost like his life too. Like he sort of like think, you know, he met my mother when he was in his late twenties, like 27 almost, you know, the same age when he showed up at the shelter that I was. Uh, and I think he was, he could still sort of like have that sort of like allure at that moment, but then it just falls into incoherence, which I think is what addiction does also. Like it, you can hold it together for a while. Like you can be sort of uh, charming in a certain way, you know, low level charm. Uh, and then it just falls apart, you know? Well, the, so. the substance gets the better of you. Yeah. You become the substance. Yeah. yeah I mean, that yeah. definitely happened to me. Yeah. Um, when, when he shows up, I mean, I, I just, I, I do find it so fascinating that he was this aspiring writer, and then that's what you became. Were you writing uh, while you were working at the homeless shelter? Yeah, I was writing, um, yeah, I was writing through my, I mean, but that was what I was using. So when I was outside the shelter, I'd write, but I was really writing when I was high or drunk or something. And so, it's, you know, you wake up in the morning, you can't read it. You can't, like, I'd have all these sort of visions and ideas and things, but I couldn't, nothing was coming together. Like, my mind, I was confused. You know how you get. Uh, I mean, when I finally, you know, went to therapy, like, after my father had been homeless for a couple years, I went to therapy, and the therapist, the first day I went in, he was just like, well, you're an alcoholic, you're a drug addict. Like, and I was like, well, I know that. I mean, that's... That's what I do. That's what I do, yeah. That's, you know, that's, he said, you're an alcoholic. I said, oh, I know. I've known I've been an alcoholic since I was a kid. That's what we, you know, we all called ourselves. My hometown... We called ourselves Alkies. That was like just a term of endearment. We just, you know, we just were all Alkies. And we thought it was funny. And, and it was, you know, when you were a kid, it was funny. Well, I mean, totaling the cars, I guess, wasn't. But um, Losing your spleen is not that comical. I guess in retrospect, it can be. Yeah, it, it, it was a consequence. It was like, yeah, it, was, it wasn't good. <laughs> what, was, what was your using like when, when you first started in therapy or, or like, or at that moment? Uh, well, that was when that moment where I... I smoked crack, which I say, you know, in the book, I think I say it in the book. I don't know. It's in the movie, too. You see me smoking crack in the movie. So I see, you know, I've written a couple books, so, but I'm pretty sure it's in this, the first book. 
it's just a moment too. It's just, it's this moment I smoked crack. Uh, it, it scared me because I was so like, you know, I just stayed up all night. I became completely like, you know, crack is a strange thing. Like you get, you, you want more like within 20, 20 minutes. You just want to take another hit. You want to take another hit. You just keep wanting to take it, which was, I hadn't had, had that experience really. I liked, you know, when I was a kid, we used to do crystal and uh, I liked that because it would just last forever. You would just do like for like 10 bucks. It would, you'd just be high forever for like a day or something. And, uh, but crack was strange. It was so strange. So, you know, so, so in the book, I, I write that I, you know, I got scared. Shortly thereafter, I got into therapy. They told me to quit, and da da da. Oh, that was what what begot the therapy. Yeah, was yeah. The crack experience. But then, when we were talking about <clears throat> misremembering, before I was thinking of that too. That's how I brought it up because a friend of mine that I used to get high with back back there, there who used to work at the worked at the shelter with me. She said, like, what, what is that shit about smoking crack once? We used to smoke crack all the time, like that she was suggesting that it was like a more of a common occurrence. And I can't really say for sure who's right in that case. I can't say I definitely did it once or that we did it more than once. I, I don't know. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I talk to old friends about stuff that I'm sure is a certain way because yeah. you also tell a story. If you tell a story a few times... It becomes the truth. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And somebody else tells it and you're like, I don't remember that. Well, it's the thing about being an addict too. It's like you just lose all credibility. Like you're telling stories. You lose that sense. Everyone's going to be like, yeah, maybe. You know, that might be... It's, it's, you don't have a solid ground to, to work from. But so. the best thing is it doesn't matter because whatever an addict decides to tell is the story, you know, basically. Um, now, when you were smoking crack and... Oh, yeah, I wanted to ask you about... Because um, it sounded to me... And you don't really go into it too much in the book, but at that point in your life, it just sounds very much that you're hanging out with this very, like, kind of arty punk rock group in the, what is it called? Uh, combat Zone? The Combat Zone. Yeah. yeah what was had... the, uh, that was a Billy Joel song. I'm stranded in the Combat Zone. I walked through Bedford style. Yeah, we, we weren't listening to Billy Joel. You weren't Joel. listening to Billy Joel? No, and, and, no, and, uh, no. And, and, not in Boston, in no. In Situate? Not in Boston, What no, were you no. listening to, like the Dead Boys and shit? Uh, you know, all sorts of like punk stuff. I mean, Boston, what were you listening to? Well, Boston in the 80s. You didn't come up listening to Glass Houses and Journey Escape? Oh, my God, no. Uh... You know, it's it not it my fault. My sister listened to this. Well, we're going to talk about, you know, The Clash. I mean, that was a big thing. You know, The Clash was earlier. That was like the early 80s. But, uh, well, The Clash was late 70s. But, but yeah, so where, in, yeah. what was The Combat Zone? Uh, Combat Zone was the adult entertainment uh, district in Boston. So it's where the strip joints were. And then the building that we moved into was, uh, had been abandoned. Me and my friend Ivan, who was a, uh, you know, he was a heroin addict. And he and I would, and I, my best friend was... Richard, and he was a heroin addict, and we would, uh, Ivan and I wandered around, like, looking for drugs, but also looking for places to live when I was, like, 24 um, in Boston, and he, he would, Ivan was clever, like, he was older, he was, like, 10 years older or so, and he would go to, like, the, um, he would we'd find buildings, and he would go to the, the city hall and look up the owner and try to figure out who the owner was and try to figure out, we'd find abandoned buildings and try to find one that we could move into. Uh, and so we found this place. We found this like amazing strip joint in the combat zone. It was what like year was that? 1984. It was like squatty, the squatty days. Yeah, it was before. Like it was like it was like you'd call it a loft, but it was like not like a. It was really trashy. It was an old abandoned strip joint that. Uh, uh, the FBI had shut down like 10 or 15 years before for it being really seedy. And it had been a place called Good Time Charlie's that my mother had used to go to with her boyfriend at the time, like right before she died. In the last like five years of her life, she was with this 
guy who's a great guy. He's, he's, he's a really great guy who was a gangster, though. He was like uh, a drug smuggler or a gangster. And uh, they would go, this was like a gangster bar that they would go to. And then it got shut down. We moved, you know, 15 years later, we moved into this building and made it, lived on every floor. So. And was it like some sort of anarchist, punk rock, squat sort of place? A lot of us in the building ended up working at the shelter. Uh, you know, so there was that. And then also people worked for like an organization called Food Not Bombs, which is like a, yeah anarchist uh, yeah. thing. Yeah. So, there, yeah, it was political. We, we would do protest things there. We did like, you know, we organized things there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what was the like the, the using then? Like, were you guys all tripping? I imagine you smoked weed every day. Yeah, like we drank, drank and smoked weed, and then, like, you'd supplement it on other times, like, with stuff that was around with, you know, uh, probably didn't do much, uh, uh, did, yeah, I did coke, did some coke, but, um, you know, we did, um, it didn't do much speed, like, the, the meth thing, I thought meth just vanished, I can't believe it came back, like, I, I thought, like, people were clearly, that was, like, bad news, and then suddenly when it came back, I was like amazed that people were, you're still doing meth? Like, that's, that's, that's horrible. But it's, it's like what you said. It's very strong. You spend it's 10 cheap. bucks. And it's so and cheap. Yeah, yeah. And you get so fucked up. But you just, I mean, I re- you really felt like you were dying as soon as you put it in. It could feel like your just body crumbling. I think and it's like, amazing. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I was reflecting on my own time on meth recently, yeah. which is what happened was I was in a, a rehab in Florida, and, um, and I hated living in Florida. And um, and my buddy Todd, who recently died, <clears throat> or died last year, you know, yeah. recently, yeah. Um, was living in California with another friend of mine. I've told this on Dopey a million times. And they asked me to go live with them. Um, and they said they weren't using drugs, but, of course, they smoked weed every day. Yeah. Uh, they took pills, and Todd had just started doing meth. Yeah. You know, they just decided not to tell me that. Yeah. Um, and as soon as I get there, he's, like, he's away, but he comes back with the meth. And... Um, and I was just, you know, I was a drug addict. I was pretty much down to do anything. And I knew the second that I smoked meth that I didn't like it. Yeah. That it was not for me. And yet I smoked it. I don't think, I think I smoked meth for three months, four months, five months. Um, but within a month, I convinced Todd that we had to go to Mexico to get pills. You know, because I was like, I can't do... I think I did meth just as a, as a, a reason to be able to take pills and do heroin again. Yeah, yeah. So, like... And, and then, soon enough, I was just like... I, I did meth, like, like, almost because I felt like I was supposed to. And, and as soon as I got back on heroin, I started shooting uh, meth and heroin together. Wow. And, and whenever I would do that, I would shoot, like, one part meth and, like, four parts heroin. And, like, and then I was like, I was like, what am I even shooting the meth for? It was almost just like, because I had read about so many people that mixed it and liked it or, or speed balls. Yeah. But, like, I never really got much out of it. Like, I just liked the low because I think yeah. naturally I was so high. Well, I think well, I was the opposite. I liked, the, I, liked, I liked meth a lot, like, when we did it. Because it, I think I, I'm sort of, I was sort of, like, dissociated in a way. I was already sort of in my own opiate state just naturally. So I wanted something to break out of that, to, like, be really wide awake. Uh, I what, feel like that's what yeah. Chris had too. Yeah, because Chris, Chris was like he always would say, "Yeah, he had his. He was a baseline, you know, heroin addict, alcoholic, but he lived to shoot coke." 
And I think it was because he yeah. was in a naturally disassociative state. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's the perfect way to describe it. Yeah, yeah, just whatever makes sense for you. You know, like, I, I did opiates, you know, several times, but uh, I didn't like them. I was really like, what the, why would you do that? Like, it, it was just sort of, I'm already sort of, like, in a dream state. And, and then I would just, it would just be gone. I would just be, like, nowhere. Is that what you like? You like just being nowhere, or maybe it's different for you? It like, gave me, like, yeah. this ridiculous peace. Yeah. Um, like, there's a, a very famous John Lennon quote uh, of when he started doing heroin, and he said he used to get, like, uh, butterflies in his stomach, and he would get nervous about uh-huh. everything. And that and it was a weird quote. I, I, I'd always say it, but he said that when he did heroin, he felt like there were two golden eagles. <laughs> and, I mean, that's a weird thing to say, that you have eagles in your stomach. Yeah, but yeah, the yeah, idea yeah. is that it gives you this peace. Yeah. And I was, like... I wouldn't say I was, I mean, it's easy to say I was a nervous wreck, but I would say I was anxious. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when I came into my opiate addiction, I was uh, producing a, a very small TV show, and I was, on, I was hosting the TV show, and the, the opiate really gave me peace, yeah, and it gave yeah. me, like, tranquility, and I felt like everything was okay because I put it in me. I, I, I knew deep down that to be cool in the world, you weren't supposed to care about anything. Mm -hmm. But I cared about everything so much. Mm. And when I finally put opiates into me, I knew what it was like not to care about anything. And that all got replaced with all I cared about was how I could get the opiates. And then, like, if I didn't get the opiates, I would be sick, and it would be, like, a whole new level of caring. So it kind of undid my my master plan of not giving a fuck. Yeah, yeah. Um, Now, I think... In the book, you know, it describes... There's this part in the book where you describe a trip to Africa and Morocco. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you describe a place in the book, and I would love to find it. Hold on. Yeah, there was a very, very dopey, poetic passage in the book. And here is the great Nick Flynn reading from Another Bullshit Night in Suck City. Yeah, this is from a chapter called uh, Morocco. Uh, when I, I went to Morocco for a week and didn't and staggered out of there two months later uh, in my mid-20s. The hashish dulls and simultaneously focuses, reduces the day to a pinpoint, to a voice inside laughing, a board strapped to your back to keep you standing. All you are now is high. Two joints and the doors close. You don't have to go out today. Who would you see if you did? I love that. I love all you are is high. I felt like that for so long, where all I was was that. And then in that same kind of area of the book, you describe um, buying opium. What was, I never got to do opium. Whenever I bought opium, it was fake. It was incense called sopium that they sold me and called it opium. I had, I'd had a, Did you ever smoke sopium? Gross. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I, it's possible. Uh, when we were kids, we did like all sorts of opiates, like pills and stuff. Like there were, you know, I stole my mother's Percodans, and there was there was stuff. We did opiates, you know. Uh, I always just avoided heroin, straight up heroin. I was just terrified of needles. You and, knew better. Yeah, I guess, or just uh, you know, it, it all leads to the same place, even without needles, I guess. But uh, I would like a, someone came into my room once, in my dorm room, when I was at UMass, and he. I just, you know, I, people knew I liked to do drugs. This guy, I don't even remember who it was, he came in and said, do you want to show, I got some black opium, which seems like just black tar heroin or something. I don't know. It's just like this, it was this black goo. 
we put it in a pipe and we smoked it. I probably smoked a lot because I just woke up four hours later. That's, that's, that was my experience. I, I woke up in the shower, like just like, like laying in a shower, like just counting the tiles, like, like just completely out of it. I was like, I, that's why I didn't really like it. I was like, what the fuck? Where did those four hours go? Right. And then so, but I would, I'd keep sort of like seeing. So someone offered me opium in, uh, in Morocco in this town called uh, Mogador, uh, it goes by Mogador or Agadir. And it, it's a really bad idea to be buying drugs. But I'd already bought, like, a ton of, like, 50 grams of hash, like, my first day there, which was, it was just a really big... Because people, you know, they go to prison for a long time if you're a tourist with any drugs. And, but I ended up, like, traveling, like, for two months with this big chunk of hash and, like, trying, trying to desperately to smoke. I didn't want to get rid of it. I ended up smuggling it back into Spain. Um, but this guy offered me opium. I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll try that. And so we went into an alleyway. He, he and this other guy went down to this alleyway, and he pulled this something out, and he pulls out this huge knife to cut it with, and he just starts cut, slicing this thing off. And I'm like, I'm like, that's opium. What the? F- what is that? Like, and then he just takes the knife and like puts it at my heart, and just says like, you know, you sure you don't have any more money? And and I was in this alley with no one else around. And I was, you know, it was just like I was like, oh, why does why does this always happen? Like it always <laughs> seemed it always seemed like. I was always buying, you know, a few times I bought drugs in the streets and they always had a big fucking knife and they always turned it on me. And I was like, ah, oh, here we are again. I'm like, this is the stupidest idea. And I just, but I, I, I somehow. Well, the trick I is knew. you only go to buy the drugs with the money to buy the drugs. You have yeah. to, that's number one. Well, he didn't get any more money. Like, he so didn't, what did you say? I just, I pushed it away. Like, I'd, I'd been working, like, I'd worked with these gangsters when I was, you know, a few years early before they all went to jail. And so I'd been around these rough people before, and I sort of knew you just had to just... I just pushed the knife away. I was like, get the fuck out of here. I just, like, pushed it away. Like, and then I'm like, let's just finish this. And then I just bought... I just gave him the money for the drugs, as you said. Like, I just didn't take it seriously. Well, that's like the Keith Richards school. Yeah. Like, did you ever hear about Keith Richards when he moved to New York? He would go down to the Lower East Side to cop, you know, in the early <laughs> 80s and it's stuff. Crazy, and crazy. he'd have a gun on him. <laughs> you know, and these, like, junkie dealers yeah. or, or, you know dealers on the Lower East Side. Lowering buckets out of windows. Yeah, Yeah. but they would fuck with him, and he would, like, pull the gun out and be like, you're fucking with the wrong guy, and it's fucking (laughs) Keith Richards. Or, like, he would be in Jamaica, and he would have a a ratchet, like a knife on him. And, like, and if people fucked with him, he, like, in, in his book, he says that he would be quick with the ratchet and cut somebody quickly along their forehead so they bled quickly. Like, can you imagine Keith Richards? He, what, he writes brown that's sugar that's on one day. That's what blinds you, because the yeah. blood goes into your eyes. But do you think yeah. he was really some ratchet fighter in the street? I know. We'll I find know. out when Keith Richards appears at my dad's house on <laughs> Dopey. Okay, that gets it back to, you know, the, the reggae. You've been listening to the, the, the uh, dance hall and the reggae, so it gets back to Johnny Too Bad. Oh, yeah. Yeah, walking Walk, down the street with, with a ratchet in my hand. Ratchet yeah. in your waist. Ratchet in your waist. Yeah, yeah. sir. That's yeah. I, my band in high school played that song, yeah, yeah. Johnny Too Bad. <laughs> I love that fucking shit. Yeah. Um, so, like, uh, and, and, like, when you, you had this, like, that's kind of like a quintessential American young man's experience traveling with drugs. Spain, Morocco, hash, opium. Like, around that time, that's pre- Pine Street, pre... No, I was, I was at Pine Street at that point. I, I left. I, I would always leave, like, for big chunks of time because it was a, a difficult... It was that kind of job. You could leave and come back. So I would leave for, like, a month and not come back for, like, four months, show up, they'd give me the job again, so... And at what point... I mean, it was your therapist that said to you, you're a fucking drug addict and an alcoholic and you need to get sober in order to figure out what's wrong with you. Well, he said that he wouldn't waste his time treating me unless I... I 
committed to going to meetings and, and quit drinking and doing drugs, yeah. And so did you do that? Was that the way out? Uh, yeah. I, well, I did. I, I, I was so annoyed that I had to pay somebody to, like, I was so annoyed with the money thing. Like that, I, and it wasn't even that much money. I was like 50 bucks or something a session, you know, compared to now. Uh, I, I think I'm, I'm remembering 50 bucks a session. And, uh, but I was so annoyed. I was like, 50 bucks? Like, you know. Like, I can talk to my friend for free. Yeah. And, and so, but I, I just, I, I really needed, like, I mean, I was ready to be locked up. He was going to commit me to a, to a mental ward. Like, I was so crazy at that point. Uh, and I, I was presenting very crazy. So he was ready to, he, he actually had the phone in his hand to call. And I was like, no, 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 I, I can hold it together. Um, from the drugs and stuff. So I, I, I said, okay, I'll, I'll stop doing drugs for like, just like a couple months, just to, so we can sort of clear this stuff up. And then I'll figure out how to maintain again. Uh, and uh, then it worked. And then it, but it turned out to be hard. I didn't, I, I thought I was in control of it. And then when I tried to quit, it was really hard. Like it turned out to be hard. I went to meetings. Uh, he actually had me go to Al-Anon meetings first, uh, which because was, your father was a terrible alcoholic. Yeah, because my father and your like being at the was shelter an addict too. Yeah, and my roommate was a heroin addict, and everyone was. It, it, it makes was sense. Like, then. Yeah, yeah. So he was just he was doing triage. So he was just right. like quit drinking, go to Al-Anon. So I went to Al-Anon, which was good because Al-Anon saved my life. I went there for two years, and uh, and then I started going to AA. So yeah. And um, and would you say that that was the turning point? The meetings. Oh, it's huge. Yeah, it's absolutely huge. Uh, the meetings and then just just also quitting, like quitting for like even a month was like amazing. Like suddenly at the end of the month, I had all this money in my pocket. Right. And I couldn't understand where it came from. I was like, what do, why do I have all this money? Like paying for therapy was easy. Like, right. You know, because suddenly I wasn't spending it all on drugs and alcohol. Like, like and, and you could think yeah. clearly. And, then, think, and then you yeah. kind of decided to re-enroll in school, right? Yeah, to finish up my degree and stuff. But, I, I, but it wasn't easy either. The first, the first month, the first year was terrible. I cried every day. And I hadn't cried for years. And I cried every day that first year being sober. Like, just would break down crying. Because of where you, what, all the stuff that had happened? And, well, because your life was so hard and well, because you were numb the, to it for so long? Well, because the drugs, yeah, the drugs would numb things. That's why, that's why I did the drugs, because you didn't have to feel anything. And then when you stop doing them, suddenly the feelings, like, rush, rush in. And suddenly you're like, this is, like, really rough. I remember a friend and I, the, guy, the last guy I did cocaine with, um, my friend Ben, uh, he and I, we did coke, and then I, right after that I went into therapy and... I was like, okay, I can't talk to Ben anymore. He's just, he was, he was bad. And then like six months later, I just ran into him on the street and he's like, we were both, he looked sheepishly at me and goes, ah, I quit drinking and doing drugs. And we were both like, then we could hang out again after that. That's the um, best. I yeah, it was that. really, it was really great. But um, we would sit around together and say, because there was an old thing in Al-Anon, like, you know, be kind to yourself and like, just realize you did the best you could. And we just would laugh and go, that was the best we could do. Like, we suck. That was the best we could do. Like, it was like really bad. Like it was low level. But I mean. But it's true though. But it's true. And and from there, did you reconnect with your dad like after sobriety had kicked in, basically? Because, I mean, you didn't handle it well when he first got to Pine Street. No, no I, I used more. No, when I, <laughs> then I, I became a little like that, that sort of zealousy thing. Like things, things really got much better right away, even though I felt really, you know, I felt all this stuff. So it was really wonky. It was a mixture. It wasn't like a pink cloud. It was like a real mixture of, uh, of, of, just clarity, but suddenly it was like blindingly clear. Like the world was blinding, like like so, you know. I could see things really clearly, and, and you know, walk out in the streets and just see like, oh, it's beautiful. This world is beautiful, but painfully beautiful. Uh, but my father was still a total fucking man. My father at that point was literally sleeping in the streets. He was like, it was the middle of the winter, and he was like in a trash bag sleeping in the streets. And my job was to go tend to him, and it was like really confusing. So I'd be like, hey, uh, you know. 
let's go to an AA meeting together. Let's try this. But like when he died, I went to his apartment, which I'd been to many times before that. And he, 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 he got off the streets after five years, you know, through you subsidized know, housing, subsidized housing and through strings being pulled by people I knew because I worked with the homeless and da, da, da. So he got, you know, he got like sort of fast tracked into like this. Hobby. But did you when you started really recon? I mean, you, the, the auspice of your reconnection with him, which I also found fascinating, was you doing a documentary about your mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. somehow he turned it into a do- into a, a story about himself. Yeah, yeah. So five years later, like I, I sort of I got sober. I tried to get him sober right away. I'm like, hey, I got the secret. We just get sober, and you know, he he would have not, none of it. And uh, that's what I was gonna say. Many people over the years, there were a dozen big books in his apartment when I like people had given him the big book like over and over again to get sober. Um, so about five years went by, and then there was a reason to talk to him. I, I kept in touch with him sporadically. He got into an apartment. I saw the apartment. Everything was okay. I did. I didn't want much to do with him. And then I was in my mid thirties. I'd been sober for five years. And I decided to make a documentary film uh, to interview my mother's ex-boyfriends, her, right. th- these 10 guys that I sort of knew that were in my memory of her, you know, guys she'd gone out with that were sort of these father figures from when I was growing up, and to just ask them two questions, ask them how they met and how they found out she died. And I just, I did, I made this documentary film, and my father was one of the people in it, so... Um, but that was like the entree of you getting into yeah, his life. Yeah, and that's what sort of began the book. That's the beginning of another bullshit night in Suck City. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also just, uh, I love the title. And I love that chapter uh, with your dad. Um, and, and just him kind of like almost making peace with his existence in the world and how much he hated his existence in the world. Yeah. And you want to read that, that section of the book? Cause it's so good. The, the piss of God, the piss of God. Should, uh, I, should yeah. I pause for a second while you no, find I can, it? I can find it. It's right here. I read, I like that chapter too. Should I read the whole chapter? No, no. Just read that, that, that paragraph. If not for the, so this is my father. He's been homeless for a couple of years at this point, And, uh, I encounter him on the street. I'm working with the homeless. My job is to go out at night from like 11 at night till, five in the morning, is that nine at night till five in the morning, um, and to tend to people who don't stay in the shelter. So, and now my father, I left the shelter because he was in the shelter, then he got evicted from the shelter, so then he followed me out into the streets. So this is me out there and encountering my father on the streets. If not for the rats, you could crawl beneath a bush, a bush, a bench, a bridge, the alliterative universe. Rats, too, can pass through that needle's eye to enter heaven as easily as they pass into a box imagined into a house. Houses inside buildings, houses inside tunnels. Some exist for only a day, some miraculously longer. This box held a refrigerator. The refrigerator is in an apartment. A man is in the box. Tomorrow, the box will be flattened and tossed. You've seen the garbage men stomping them down to fit into the truck. Wake up in the grass, soaking wet. Dew is the piss of God. Another bullshit night in Suck City, my father mutters. No, I want the, the paragraph before that. <laughs> the paragraph before that. <clears throat> oh, okay. But I thought you wanted it where he said the title. I do, but I guess I misremember. Where he's all, like, complaining about his life. Oh, okay. Right? Isn't that the one before it? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's the whole thing. It's whole th- yeah. Let me see. Let me see that thing. Give me that. <laughs> Sometimes a man falls asleep, that one, or... Uh, Maybe I read it too pretty. I should have read it sort of more edgy or something. 
Oh, looks like you're fuck. misremembering. It's like yeah. maybe it's not that chapter at all. No, it was though. <laughs> it was like sometimes it, it was like it was just he's like all pissed. <laughs> oh no, no, it was like it was like all about him being pissed in the streets, it, it, like where he's at. It's raining and he's miserable and like I just I don't know. It doesn't matter. I mean that's beautiful in itself. But I remember it differently. And I think one of the reasons that I remember it differently, and I experienced the book in the wrong way, which is that I started reading the book and then I started listening to the audio tape. Uh, okay. And like... I've never listened to the audio. Don't listen to it. It's a great book either way. Yeah. But the, it's weird because the dude who narrates the audio book... Yeah, I've heard it's bad. ...is the same dude who narrates the audio book to David Sheff's Beautiful Boy. And wow. I interviewed David Sheff... Off, I remember. ...off the Beautiful Boy thing... And his voice is way better than the dude. And he has a kid. The fucked up thing is that David Chef has a kid named Jasper. And so he describes his son, Jasper. And you have a buddy named Jasper. And when I hear this motherfucking narrator say both of the he's got this bougie thing to his voice that just drives me crazy. Um, now, I also want to talk about... There's a bunch of things I want to talk about, but I want to talk about poetry. <coughs> now, really? And, well, very little. Very, I, I want, know. I'm very, surprised. Very yeah. little. I, I, keep, I keep sending you poems. You don't play them all. So. I played two out of three. Two out of three, yeah. That's yeah. not fucking I'm bad. waiting. I'm not going to send you another one until you, until you play the last I one. Think so. that's, I think that's fair. <laughs> but I came up in a, you know, a pretty like bougie high school, and one of my very good friends in the high school became this renowned poet. That's right. You told me that. Yeah. yeah. And um, I know I know who he is. Yeah, I remember yeah. now. Yes. And um, I always thought poetry was such bullshit. You know, like personally. Like personally. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm yeah. not putting you down. <laughs> I, I think I always thought I couldn't like I couldn't understand it. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? And like I think some poetry is very beautiful. And, and some poetry is very funny. And, and poetry is very abstract. But I remember I was talking to, I think I was begrudging my friend's success. And I was talking to another That's pretty friend. sad if you begrudge a poet their success. Well, That's my friend sad. is very successful. But a very successful poet is still like sort of a bottom feeder. Well, he was very full of his success. <laughs> and I was kind of like talking shit. And I was like, because my friend was such a great bullshit artist in high school. And I was like, you see, a bullshit artist can be a great poet because it's just fucking bullshit, bullshit. <laughs> you know? And it's like, but, so explain... Where's the good part of this about poets? I don't know. What, you, it's your, that's your job. <laughs> Clear it up for me. Like, where does bullshit and poetry intersect? And, like, can you only believe a poet who's insane? Is a poet who's not insane a bullshit artist is the question. Wow. Wow, that's a that's Steve. a lot. It, well, it depends. I mean, there's all sorts. Of, it's like it's like any like filmmakers and stuff. Sometimes the filmmaker can be a total asshole, uh, yet they write these amazing things. They write these amazing books. It's, it seems like outside the artist a lot of times. A painter, you know, there's, there's painters that we know they're total assholes, and yet they. But I'm not saying asshole. I'm saying poetry is such a, a strange thing. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's a dance of words. Mm-hmm. It's 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 almost. It's funny because we got into another conversation about psychotherapy and poetry. You and I? Yeah. Uh. And you were talking about how, like, a psychotherapist thinks they can make an assessment of somebody, and psychotherapy's only been around for, like, 90 years, and, 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 and he talks shit about a poet, and, a po- and poetry's been around for thousands of years. But yeah. still, there's... I mean, maybe it's because I grew up in front of the television. You know what I mean? Maybe it's because poetry is the opposite of a sitcom. 
You know what I mean? It's like, possible. I, I want to make a, a little film, a film. It could be like an almost an endless film of like references to poetry and pop culture. I mean, almost anything you see, a poem is like reference. Any, any movie, there's like a moment where suddenly they break into like a poem and you might not know it or they might say it, this is a poem. There's a great Clint Eastwood, uh, uh, what is it? The one where he has to set his arm on a tree. He's broken his arm and he has to tie it to a tree and then set it himself. With Dirty Harry? No, it's not Dirty Harry. It's a cowboy. It's a Western. The Unforgiven? No, no, no. It's before that. Uh, uh, Another so, bullshit night in Suck City? So he goes in. After he sets his arm on a tree, he goes into a bar. And Josie like, Wales, the outlaw? Uh, the good, the bad, the ugly? It wasn't those. Yeah, it wasn't any of those. Um, so he goes in to a bar and he sits down. He's just reset his dislocated shoulder and he, and he sits in a bar, takes a shot of whiskey and then he recites a poem. He recites this poem and the guy next to the bar just looks over and I'm really shocked. He goes, what the hell was that? And he goes, it's a poem. What was the poem? Do you remember? <laughs> no, I got to look at it again. I got to remember the movie. I got to remember the movie, but I thought it was a beautiful moment. That sort of got me thinking about we should make this sort of a whole, someone in Dopey Nation, maybe the guy in Worcester should make this thing about all references to I don't know. Poetry. I don't think there are many dopey references to poetry before you came along. I know. I, I, I'm infiltrating. I'm trying to like insert poetry into the dopey. Well, nation, let's so. let, for okay. So let's yeah. do this. Somebody, this guy, crazy dopey fan, yeah. old school dopey fan, uh-huh. decided to take you up. Cool. On the cool. dopey poetry corner. His mm-hmm. name is Ian. I believe he's from St. Louis. Fantastic. And let, let's hear Ian. Hold on. There's no kind of certain despair quite like the rig's way to ensnare. The rush of dope in seconds flat plays both sides of this and that. The concept itself is actually quite better, inducing perfect highs unfettered. A false memory of what I'll feel is perfection so unreal. Still hunted when you've learned the deal. Not slowing mind's relentless wheel that searches for what's always not. And so the void again you've got. And since all junkies hold what's hot, if void will sell, must carefully trot. Dope sick yawn, a prayer to pawn. Without success, all dark, no dawn. And turn the wheel just on and on. Why do I romanticize? Without reason but artful lies. And pretending I see through pinpoint eyes. I still claim I must be so wise. Until game over, out of tries. Quiet in that void it cries. All companies co-miserize. To myself and mine to me must somehow pull some fuckery. Like me as Holmes and Moriarty. A competition I can't see will rage until I truly be. Or easy death in one, two, three. But that just sounds like such a bummer. I have a great idea this summer. A new super zero junkie man to fight it out. Is tougher than to find the hell I guess I plan that might be the hero's saying. And what kryptonite sets off his slaying? Or what arch villain is it obeying? Well, since this comic won't get money, I don't mind that it's dark but funny. That the villain of this stupid books is one who stays by ways of hooks. It's one with whom he can't share looks. This enticing mystery is the saddest sort of enemy. While battling in failing health, he must so spar his own weak self and still fight through the healthy hordes on, on, always towards a thankless hell with no rewards. But all throughout the death, the night, be 
shoot right back to hype. So that's dopey super fan Ian from St. Louis. What, what do you say, Mister Mister Poetry Mike Flynn? That that wasn't bullshit. That was good. That, that, it's a you know rhyming. He does a little rhyme thing. His voice is great. He's got a good voice. Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's, it's it's very Alan Ginsberg. His voice, which is in, the way he reads, is like Ginsberg read. So okay, well, do you ever hear a poet and you're like, this guy's fucking full of shit? Sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. When? Sure. When have I heard it? I, yeah. I mean, often I've, there's a lot of poems I don't like. I mean, there's there's many, you know, a lot of poems I don't like. I'm not like I'd like like every poem is good. That'd be crazy. No, I think that the whole yeah. point of poetry though isn't necessarily to be good. It's to like be able to abstractly use words to convey something, right? I mean, I think poetry is like any art. It's about somehow navigating emotional energy. It's like trying to figure out how to like there's something sort of happening that's really ephemeral, like this emotional state, and how to contain that in like language, which is like also giving like this whole, sort of like creating a whole world from that language. Like it's, but it's about the emotional state. It begins with that, I think. Right, which is what got you down this whole path of writing in the first place. Uh, I, to create a world with language. I, I guess so. I was just being amazed that you could, I think. And, and finding things that sort of spoke to me that, like, wow, you, you can do this thing that exists. Or... So, so when did this book really come together? Uh, what, the, another Bullshit Night in Suck City? Um, well, I mean, my father, you know, my first book of poetry came out uh, about four years before this and book came out. And he was jealous, right? He was, yeah, he was, he was jealous that I had a book published, yeah. So I showed him that book. You're like, fuck you, Dad. And I'm not homeless. <laughs> um, and, yeah, the book came out, and, and he was sort of surprised. Like, I'm going to cook my dinner tonight and read my book. <laughs> at that point, when the book came out, he'd, sorry. Been, he'd been in an apartment for many years at that still, point. It's, yeah. fun. it's fun for me. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I wouldn't go up to a homeless person and, like, sort of rub it in their face. Uh, no, he'd been in the apartment for almost 10 but years. But it's your dad who abandoned you, you know, and who, like, fashioned himself as this great writer... Like, there's, there's a certain sadness to it, but I'm sure there's a pain that you had in dealing with him. The pain, it was strange. The pain, it was really painful when he was on the streets. Like, the idea that he would die, like, he would, you know, get set on fire by a bunch of kids or get beaten by the police or freeze to death. It was really painful to think that that would be how he would die. But you weren't angry at him for abandoning you? Well, I mean, the thing is, is that, like, I really feel quite lucky that I did not grow up with my father. Right. Like, my father was such a disaster. I feel like we, we, we dodged the bullet. Like, right. if we had, imagine if, I mean, I would be, I'm pretty fucked up now. I'd be so fucked up if I'd grown up with him. Right. So I feel like that was a great gift. You know, my mother figured out, like, we got to get the fuck away from this guy. Like, do I feel bad that he was, do I, am I angry that he was an addict? Well, you know, I mean, we've talked about that. I mean, you've talked about that. Can you be angry that this, right. you know, you wish it wasn't so, but... Anger is a, not maybe the appropriate, or not the, any, any emotion is appropriate, but it, it's more complicated than that. What I really want to hear about, and we're going to, I don't want you to, you can't be late for this thing. What I really want to hear about is like when this book came out and you had this incredible success, what was the experience like? Um, well, unfortunately, when the book came out, I had, I had, I had begun dabbling in, uh, in using again. Uh, pre or post? Pre, pre. Like a little bit, like hearing that, like someone offered me, a friend of mine who's still a dear friend, offered me this, this you know, I'd, I'd managed to, there was a lot of drugs I hadn't done, but this, he came with this thing that was like, you know, spiritual, almost like an ayahuasca type thing. It was called salvia divinorum. Sure. Uh, you know, you know everything. I've heard of it. You know everything. No, yeah, I don't. It's like Chris, a sage. Chris knew everything. It's a sage extract. I've just you, heard of it. And supposedly you have visions. You, just, you smoke a little bit of it with a shaman and you have visions and da, da, da. And I was like, 
Yeah, somehow I, somehow I was open to I was open to it. Ten years, I'd been sober, nothing for ten years, and I was like, yeah, I could, I got this. I can handle that. And I drifted away from meetings a bit. I've been doing other things, so uh-huh. it was like the usual story. So I'm like, yeah, I, I can do that. I, yeah, I didn't quite get the first step that like you know I was powerless. I was like, I yeah, you know, my life was unmanageable. Life is manageable now. I'm going to try this thing. So I, me, me and him and another guy, another friend, we just sort of did this sort of ritual where we sat around and like he was very he was trying to be very sort of shamanistic he was not a shaman he was trying to be very sort of like make it very sort of spiritual and stuff and lights low and stuff and so but as soon as i took a hit off the pipe you were high well i wasn't high. No, i wasn't high so i was like give me that fucking pipe i'm I'm already i've I've already like you know i'm no longer sober so i'm gonna get fucking high (laughs) so i grabbed the pipe from him just started like doing it and he was like whoa 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 don't don't do so much I, i did it until i like felt it which right. was quite a bit. I did it, like, I took, like, five hits or something. And then I was really, like, I mean, I, I just, like, I, I had a really good experience, you know. What happened? Well, it was, it was salvia divinorum. It's like you trip really intensely, more intensely than I've ever tripped for, like, ten minutes. Like, you just take... You, it's like DMT-ish, it sounds. I, I guess. I don't... I, I think I did that, but I was... That was sort of a garbagey thing. I was doing it with other things, so... But I did it, the whole, the whole world became play school red plastic. Like, the entire world became, like, everything. Like, you were red plastic, and they would sort of, your hand would come through the plastic right. toward me, and the trees were plastic. It was just, like, this crazy, I was just laughing, like, oh, my God, the world is a whole other place. Right. And so then, that was the beginning. Then I probably didn't do anything for another six months. At one point, I went to Vietnam shortly after that, or, or at some point after that, I went to Vietnam. And, again, I was offered this drink. I was, I was there with my the guy that was growing the marijuana in my backyard who'd been a veteran, we went back there to make a documentary film, and he was like... Was that part of the mother film? Or a no, it was film? another film. This was another film. Did you make a bunch of movies? Yeah, I worked on a bunch of different movies, yeah. Um, and then he, he was having a really hard time, a real PTSD time, being back in Vietnam for the first time, so he was drinking a lot. I wasn't drinking, wasn't drinking, wasn't drinking. Then at the end of the whole shoot, we were, I was standing around with all the veterans, and they, there'd been this thing in Vietnam called Cobra Wine, which is just they take an entire live cobra and put it in, like, grain alcohol so it emits its, like, venom. venom. And then you drink a little bit every day. You take a shot of it every day, and then if you get bit by a cobra, you won't die, is what they think. The anti-venom. Yeah, venom. so I resisted the cobra wine the whole time because I wasn't drinking. And I was like, yeah, I'm good. I'm sober. I'm you know, I'd done this thing. I had this one trip. And then, like, six months later, I go to Vietnam. And, um, and then suddenly this we're, we're with the vets we're just saying goodbye and someone brought out this big jar of like cobra wine but they'd taken an entire crow and also stuffed it into the thing so it was crow cobra wine i'm like well i'm never going to get offered this again <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> so this you is, drank wine that had a crow and it a wasn't cobra wine, in it was like grain alcohol with it was a like crow white in it you a could crow, see the black feathers in there and shit the whole bird it was just That's stuffed disgusting. in a big jar with a Cobra in the bottom with its fangs out. See, I think this relapse really shows who you are. I took a shot of it, and then I was like, and then kind of like, you know, so by the time the book came out, I was sort of stumbling along. I started smoking pot again a little bit. I was like, yeah, I got this. I, you know, I did the Cobra wine. I did the Salvia Divinorum. No police came. No, right. I didn't lose my spleen again. Right. So I got this. And then I began sort of using. Then by the end, when the book came out, um, suddenly it was, there was a lot of attention on it. I wasn't used to that much attention, and... I was on the road for two years. I was just like doing a reading like every night in different countries. For, like, That's why you're so years. good at reading and being on the mic. I guess maybe. Um, I, I didn't know I was good. I think you're very good on the mic, actually. Your voice is so nice. So. Well, but I, yeah. I, I like the newest thing, and I, I appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. But yeah. the newest thing in Dopey is I'm wearing headphones, yeah. which I never used to do. Yeah. Like 
Chris, Chris and I never wore headphones. Oh, no, I heard the early shows. I heard the early shows, yeah. You know, and, and like, even when we got the board, we didn't know how to use it. <laughs> and I went to B&H last week to try to learn some stuff, and this Orthodox Jew... I heard. He tried to upsell you. He didn't really, though. No, okay. and, and in fact, he, I, I should have told the story on the show, and I think you're going to find it really interesting. He's this Orthodox Jew who lives in Orthodox Jew land in Brooklyn, and he's like, he's like, I studied the Kabbalah, and I believe that everything in this earth starts with sound and vibration. Beautiful. And, and the whole universe was created with vibration. Oh, that's so, beautiful. That's and, beautiful. And so he's like, so why don't you wear fucking headphones when you record your podcast? <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't remember how he got to there, but he's like, do you listen to yourself when you record? And I was like, no. And in fact, uh-huh. usually when we record... I sit back here and I act like cool yeah. and the other person does what you do and they sit on the mic like that. Yeah. And holy shit, I'm not hearing it for a second. Either. And, and so like, I was like, wow. I'm going to try wearing headphones and it's like, uh, it's like way different. Yeah. It's way different. It's also just, it's a little weird. Um, the Kabbalah has thing too. I've been writing about it for a new book I'm working on. That the, the world, there's two books that existed. One's called the Book of Creation and the Book of Splendor. And the Book of Creation is like what happens every day. Like the things you have to do and the Book of Splendor is sort of the mystical stuff. I think, I think that's just beautiful. So. Yeah, I, I'm going to get Yudi on the show so he can lay it down. <laughs> but, um, but so back to the success, yeah. you know, so like you're fucking around and you're smoking pot and you're drinking crow wine and cobra wine and smoking yeah. salvia, and then you meet Lily Taylor. Yeah, I met Lily. Uh, and um, Was she drinking at the time? Uh, yeah, no, she doesn't drink, but, you know, she, you can ask her about that stuff, you know. Um, smart, smart answer. Yeah, uh, but yeah, she, she wasn't drinking. So, um, and I was, I was sort of, I really liked being sober, but at that point in my life, like I was like, I somehow like I was so con- the drugs had sort of like taken over again. Which just weed? It was yeah, it was weed. You know, it started out with other things, and I, yeah, I just I was just trying to fo- stay on weed, but I, it was, became like daily, and uh, and I really liked being sober, but I really liked being fucked up. Yeah, like, and I couldn't figure out that you couldn't do both. Like, I, I was right. Like, I was like, okay, I'll be sober during the day. I'll go to a meeting now and then. I'll tell my sober friends that I'm, like, smoking pot once in a while. And, and all of Do you think what it was, though, is that you have the success that you've dreamed of. Why can't I enjoy a little bud? I think it was more like the, the, the complications of, like, writing a book that's so, like... You know, it's, it's debaucherous. Well, debaucherous, but also raw, too. It's like about, you know, my mother's suicide, my father's homelessness. There's a lot of shame involved in it. And I had to stand up in front of people. And, you know, people were really, you know, beautiful people came up that also had a homeless, you know, a homeless right, know, right, brother right, or, right, or, right, or right. father. People came up. I became like a, a, you know, like a model for something. I didn't feel like a model of anything. So I'd have to It's appear. a model for pain, for I'd raw have, pain. I'd have to appear some way in public. And then, like, when I go back to the hotel room, I'm like, fuck this. Like, this isn't real. So... Uh, so you would medicate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it, you know, it, didn't, it lasted for a while, and then I, I, I got back into the room. So, What was the worst thing that happened? I mean, and then when did the movie happen, before we even get to that? I was, I was sober by the time the movie happened. Um, so then before we get there, what was the worst thing that happened during the relapse? Is there a good dopey story? No, it was like just smoking pot. Like, it's nothing. It was really like alone in my room, just getting high, and then going crazier, and then just sort of... Just like, like they were just causing like pain for other people I was with, you know. Like I love yeah. something you had said to me though. Uh, you talked about going back to the rooms, and like you were like, "What the fuck is this?" And you you felt like very much like people were trying to like 
coerce you into doing something you didn't want. And, which isn't true at all. Like but they, that's what you felt, Yeah, right? well, no, I, 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 didn't think, I didn't think it was the people in the rooms who were trying to coerce me. I felt like, you know, what, what is it like, you know, why am I being forced to go here? Like, why do I have to be in this room with these losers or these, like, you know, these, like... Losers. These, these people, like, like, that are, like, you know, I, I just had such a hard time to, when I went back in. Like, I just... Uh, and, and nobody, but nobody, when I said that I'd been using when I was out and going to meetings and stuff, and I'd say I was, you know, getting high, nobody, no, not one person, everyone just asked me, like, well, how's it going? How's that going for you? Right. They never said, like, oh, you shouldn't do that. No one ever said that, which is really sort of beautiful. And I, I, that's a model for me now. If I know someone who's used it, I'll just ask, like, how's that going for you? And it's a weird, though, double-edged question. Because, yeah. like, in the big book, it's, like, where he says... If you think you can drink, yeah. go do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And let's yeah. see how it goes for yeah, you. Yeah, and yeah. when somebody in the program says, oh, how's that going for you? Yeah. They want to hear, oh, it's fucking terrible. Or they yeah. want to hear, it's great. Yeah, yeah. We're so like, we hold on to like, oh, you're not in the program? Like, you don't yeah. have to do this? Like, yeah. what, what yeah, is yeah, it yeah. like yeah. for you? Yeah, yeah. Try to, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I think there was genuine curiosity. Like, have you figured this out? Have right. you figured out a way to do this? And I was like, yeah, I figured it out. But things, but other things in my life were, becoming a disaster like just you know my relationships were not good and my you know I just I was getting again like sort of feeling crazy like I end up feeling like really mentally ill uh when I'm using like it feels like I'm uh yeah not a healthy person well that's what we would call severe mental illness yeah yeah. early on in the show where where we would talk about like what was wrong with us and and, like Chris had all sorts of abbreviations for his things and I I said oh you had SMI which was severe mental illness and I feel all SMI if I don't go to a, like at exactly. least a meeting a week, exactly. I, I like yeah. get to overthinking everything and yeah. worrying about everything. Well, it's like it's like a, I, I realize at a certain point it's just a daily practice. Like like just a, everything is sort of a daily practice. You just have to like do the things that keep me on on uh, you know on a level you know not not drifting off the rails. You know falling off the rails. Like I have to do stuff. So I'm, I'm going to therapy today. I'm going to you know I go to meetings. I go to yoga. I go to stuff to keep me. Sane. You know? My practice is lacking, my friend. Yeah, well, let's go to a meeting, man. I, uh, I'm running around like a, a crazy person. There's so much crazy stuff going on at home and work and this. Yeah. I mean, the only good thing about this being, like, becoming a little bit successful is that it has a lot of people reaching out to me, and it keeps me engaged with trying to, like, mm-hmm. look out. You know, so that, that, it's like, there's no, if I ever say that Dopey's taking the place of a program... I'm in big trouble. Yeah, but yeah. T- but to be able to respond to people is like is like good. But I think I think even just having a you know a conversation regularly with another addict who's you know in recovery, I think is very helpful. Right. So, That's what I yeah. mean. That's what yeah. I mean. I think I, I find that very helpful. So most of you know, I met with a friend for coffee yesterday who's a friend in recovery. I, I you know I do often, even if I'm, you know, if I don't make it to a meeting every day, I'm. I'm I'm keeping track of that stuff, and we talk about recovery stuff. So right, and it's like that's what when you and which I, is what we're doing. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And and how did you find Dopey? I heard I heard about it on a Reddit, uh, a, a podcast out of Boston, WBUR, called like Endless Thread. And I don't know why I went to that one, but I just went to one that was talking about uh, you and Chris. It was after Chris died, so yeah. it was like in the fall, and it just and then after that, I you know. I heard the uh, This American Life thing. But I, I started listening to it before This American Life. So Right on. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, uh, we're coming up on a, a year, obviously, since Chris died, um, which is very painful and weird. Um, 
but it's also very beautiful. Like, I mean, like, it, it's hard for me to, to talk about, like, what it means that the show got so much bigger after he died. It's, mm-hmm. like, it's very weird, but I, I think of it kind of like the way flower... I mean, it's very poetic, if you will. It's the way, mm-hmm. the way things are born from the decay of something else, and I mm-hmm. think that happened with Chris. I think that uh, it's also the, like the, watching the car crash. Holy shit, the hose died. Like, what's the other guy going to fucking do? Yeah, yeah. You know, and then, of course, it's the stories. Um, but I, uh, you know, I've enjoyed Dopey. Uh, I've enjoyed uh, doing it. Uh, we're going to, I think, you know, I think we're actually going to do the Dopey live event at the end of the summer. Uh, to celebrate the year since nice. Chris died. Oh, it's great. also going to celebrate the 200th episode of the show. Wow. I which, didn't know that. That's w- great. Which will coincide with, with Chris's uh, birthday. Yeah. You know, Chris's death day is approaching. Chris's birthday is in the middle of August, and we call that Christmas. Yeah, I remember. Because we yeah. miss Chris. Yeah. Um, so we're going to, I think we're going to do an event in New York City uh, in August for that. So get ready. Do it at the end of August. I'll come. Why, where will you be in the middle? province so all right well i think we're going to do it last two weeks of august Great. and you should come and, yeah. and and let us know i mean i know you guys think i'm not really going to do it and it's possible i don't because i'm scared to do it too <coughs> but maybe i will maybe i won't i know my dad will want to come but i won't want him to come yeah isn't that yeah. fucked up well it seems like you have a complicated relationship with your father i love my father yeah it's, it's I can more tell. simple i can tell yeah it's more simple than that yeah, yeah. but yeah. like nobody wants it's like having a band you don't want your parents to show up at the gig <laughs> but your dad's so cool though is he? I think so. All yeah. right. Well, that's yeah. great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I like, I like Alan, yeah. How is this experience for you? This is great. I, I brought you a gift. Are you going to open the gift on, on, on radio? Or? Where is it? It's right there. It's a box right there. I made the box for you and everything. Wow. Yeah. Dopey gift. What's it say? What's, what's the box it says, say? It says damaged, and I assume you're talking about me. It's a, what is it, though? It's, it doesn't just say damaged. It's, it's two guys holding a big sign that says damaged coming off of a truck. I'll post it. And, um, and it says... T-L-E-R, which I think is a reference to your wife, Lily Taylor. Oh. I don't know if that's true. I don't know, yeah. And then inside, we have fancy socks. Yeah, I got you some socks, yeah. That say, love me not. No, they say... Love me, love me not. That's awesome. (laughs) I love that. I thought I I shouldn't get you a cookie, you know? And then look at that. Some sort of weird thing that says alcohol seltzer. Because I always wonder about... Caffeinated seltzer. Chris was a big fan of caffeinated seltzer. <laughs> now, before we go, here, read this. What do you got? I got a, an email. We might as well just end the fucking show nicely. Can you read an email before yeah, we go? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. You got a little time. A little time, yeah, yeah. You can't be late for that. It's going to fuck no, you up. He's got, he's got therapy. Cannot be late. If you're no. late, you're going to get in big trouble. It's, it's not just therapy. It's, it's more than By that. myself, yeah. yeah. So I, I read the whole thing? Yeah. Don't read Do, his name, though. It's a guy named Brian. Okay. The, the uh, subject line is still there. Still there. Uh, oops. Told the same story twice. Love you, man. No, Two no, weeks. don't read that. Don't, don't read that. that? Okay, sorry. Read it from the body of the email. Okay, sorry. I've reached read the episode. From, yeah. Okay, this is uh, subject still there, question mark. I've reached the episode where our dear Chris has left this place. When I first wrote you, I asked if you could keep the show going. And I just noticed you already did just that. Like I said in a different message, I was an IV heroin addict for about five years, and that includes the first three years of our marriage. 
I love your show, and I'll write you a quick story if you're interested. Most of the time, I hated alcohol because it's too much work trying to maintain a steady buzz. But one time, about 10 years ago, I drank a couple bottles of wine, and by this time, it was too late to buy booze at stores. I made my sweet wife take me to a local bar. It's a small town. I got out of the car and approached the door. It was locked. I started getting upset. Then I waited till the live band finished at a song. I knocked on the door. They thought I was the cops banging on the door to silence the band. So they yelled into the mic, should we let him in? The crowd yelled, no, ha, ha, ha. I didn't know they thought I was the cops. I also didn't know the front door was blocked by the makeshift band stage and that people were all going in and out of a back door I didn't know existed. I got so hysterical and angry that I went out in the front parking lot and I was using a hammer blow to break the windows on three cars. <laughs> I, didn't realize, I didn't realize it, but a cop was sitting in his car and saw the whole thing. Before I, this story gets better and better. Before I moved to the fourth car, he pulled up and asked me if I just smashed windows. I explained that I saw that guy and he ran down the alley. <laughs> the cops didn't buy it. He was a rookie and tried to charge me with three felonies. That was on a Friday night. I had to stay in jail till the judge got there on Monday. Made some new friends in jail. LOL. What ended up happening was that I talked on the phone with my dad, and I told him to sell all my firearms, <laughs> safe and all, <laughs> to both fix the windshields and pay a lawyer. What I did was revoke my probation. So I ended up going to jail in the next county over after getting out of the first jail. All the guns sold for $6,000-ish. 4K went to my lawyer, and 2K went to court costs. By the time Monday rolled around, my dad had used my money from the gun collection to repair all of the windows. When the judge heard it was my own money, he got this look like he was really, really impressed. He dropped two of the three charges and put me on double probation along with the other county's probation that was just being broken. I can look back and laugh. I try to picture myself throwing a temper tantrum, breaking people's windows, and it makes me smile or laugh. I have actual dope stories, too, and if you want, I can either email you or send you a voicemail to be aired on the show. I love you, and I loved Chris. I loved, I've loved all of the other listeners that have shared stories, too. Please keep this up, Dave. Toodles. It's Brian, right? It's Brian? It's who wrote it? I thought it. you told me not to say the name. Just don't say the last name. Oh, Brian, yeah. yeah it's, it's Brian. Brian. All right, yeah. good. So thank you, Brian. It's a great story. Yeah. You like that story, Nick? I do. I, it's, it's, <laughs> it gets better and better. It has, like... <laughs> Send in dope stories, send in voicemails, follow us on all the things, Instagram, Reddit, fucking Facebook, Twitter, blah, blah, blah. Nick doesn't engage in that shit. I do, a little bit. No, I do. But um, is there anything else you, you need to say to the world before you go? Is there anything that you haven't said that you'd like to say? No. To I'm, dopey I'm, nation? No, I'm, I'm glad. Keep it up. You know, I'm glad you're doing this. It's like, it's really good. It's, yeah. coming, it's coming along, and it's, yeah. um, thank you. It's fun. Yeah. I like doing you're the doing show. You're doing a great job. I really think you are. I wish, yeah. um, I do obviously wish that it hadn't gone down the way it went down. Um, because when I listen to old shows, they were a million times, like, this is not against you, I think we had a really nice time. But the old shows were just so innocent and funny. Yeah. Um, and it's very painful yeah. Yeah. to listen to them. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, I also think it's painful because it's very rare that you have a relationship with somebody that you basically record 50% of the relationship or, mm -hmm. or, or a huge, maybe 25% of our relationship yeah. was recorded yeah. and it was developed on the show. So yeah. it's like, 
that's why the show is magical because it's got real magic in it, which was our friendship. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, so I, I mean, it's like a voodoo doll or something, that there's something real in there. But hopefully that's just spread out into the other people you're inviting in now. So I think so. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I obviously, I felt a connection with you when we, when, yeah. when we met. I was kind of scared of you. But then when we hung out and we walked for a while and we hung out outside, we had a really good time. Did, did you think I was a stalker or something? Like No, I just thought, I thought... I thought you were crazy and on drugs. That's what I, I figured. But, um, but then I realized you weren't. You were just a little crazy and an artist and a poet. Right? Well, I, I don't know. I can't really. I can't, I'm, I'll have my therapist tell We'll you. say you're yeah. a character, but no, I don't think you're crazy or on drugs or a stalker. And I appreciate it. Not on drugs. I, not on drugs. Yeah. But maybe you're crazy and a stalker. You're definitely well, not a, little, a stalker. I was a little stalkery because I went to your restaurant. But you had a friend with you who probably wanted to go there. But I said to meet there. I said, like, let's meet at this place. Like, this is this guy doing this podcast. And ah. I'd, like to, I'd like to meet. I didn't. It was just a random. Well, I figured that was, anybody who's yeah. outside of New York wants to go there. And it's like a... It's he like lives a in New York. Yeah, he lives in... I that thought guy there was lives, a girl. Yeah, there was also... Yeah, my friend Jojo was there, too. She met us there also, yeah. I don't remember the dude. His, he was named Doug, yeah. Oh, well. Sorry, Doug. He's from my hometown. He was the first person I'd get drunk with, yeah. There you go. I did a lot of drugs with Doug. Yeah, what was the number one dopey drug story before you go? <laughs> you got one? Number one dopey drug story with Doug, oh, with Doug, or without Doug. You got you want you have a dopey story that you didn't tell that you want to just lay down real quick. Oh, I gotta think. I'll have to call it in or something. What's a dopey drug story? Um, I mean, just like I mean, just like wiping out my motorcycle on like you know, uh, and losing my spleen and just thinking everything's all right. It, it mostly it's just like thinking things are okay and feeling there were no consequences to things. It's like and that was just endless. It was just this endless sort of parade of like bad things happening and. And just thinking there's kind of funny, like having this like sense, like it's all kind of wild and kind of funny and like it doesn't really matter. And then finally, like when I quit, just being like, what the fuck? Like, why? That, that wasn't funny. Like, it was just really terrifying. Well, that's know? the weird thing about Dopey. It's like somehow the reason why it was perfect was because Chris and I thought all that shit was funny. Yeah. But you got to go. I got to go. And we yeah. got to get Lily to come on the show. Okay. Yeah. And, okay. um... And everybody else, and uh, and uh, stay strong, Dopey Nation. Yeah, stay strong, Dopey Nation. And yeah. fucking toodles for Chris. Toodles. Thank you. Cool. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. So good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good, so bad. Bad desires, all I ever had. And I want to take a ride up in the sky. Watch this airplane just pass me by. And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive just to show all of these people what it means to be alive. But I want to be. So good, so bad, so bad. I wanna be good, so bad. Bad desires, all I ever had. And my shadows getting smaller and smaller. And it's time to where I stand. Shadows getting smaller and smaller. City far behind 
take the high road, however far it winds, because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find, and I want to be good so bad, want to be good so bad, so bad, I want to be good so bad, bad desires all I ever had, damn it, all these suckers make me mad. And it's all I ever had. And these suckers make me mad, and I don't want to call my dad. And it's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had. And these suckers make me mad, and it's all I ever had.